Um, I read this in the last few weeks. Uh, the, the table ought to be the primary symbol for the Christian gathering. The table. Uh, I was reading, I've been reading a lot about the table in Scripture and studying and, and trying to learn more um, for both myself and for us as a community and what it means for us to be a community that's centered on Jesus, pursuing Jesus, and trying to learn to do life the way that he did it. And um, I read this, this comment that the table should be central. And I was thinking it's interesting in the church that, that for us in today's world that when we think about church, we think about this, right? We think about gathering and singing some songs and worship, worship people up here doing their thing, which is awesome. We have a great worship team. And then somebody getting up and speaking from a platform and opening God's word, which is good. We should do that. But this, like this is a part of church, of being the church, but this is not what Jesus had in mind primarily as the experience of the church. Now that's risky for me to say that, isn't it? Some of you are like, oh, I can go and it doesn't matter. No, no, this is a part of it, but it's not like the central thing that Jesus wanted us to experience. Jesus wanted us to be a community, I believe, that was messy and involved in life with each other. And this idea that the, the table is the central part of I mean, think about your table at home. When, it, when, when you have a, a, a group of people gathered around that table, think about how messy it is. It's just messy, isn't it? Or it should be. And, it's, and it's, it's the place, and it's a sacred space in our homes that sometimes are the highlights, right? And sometimes it's a battleground and a place of tears. If you've, if you've, if you've had teenagers in your life, can I get an amen? <laughs> and I spoke last week, I, or two weeks ago, I was, I was mentioning that as a kid, so often my table... Uh, our, our, our table at home was, was a bit of a battleground. You know, my parents uh, had a tough time in, in my middle school and uh, elementary, middle school, high school years. And, you know, it led to divorce in our home, like a broken home. And it can be so painful at times. But then I was thinking back because that's not the only experience I had as, as a kid, right? It wasn't just a painful table. It was a joyful table. I remember um, us doing impersonations of our teachers, around the table. It was awesome. Mr. Bailey, fifth grade, he had a goatee, and uh, he was tall and lanky, and he would put his hand on his back like this, and he'd kind of stroke his goatee, and he'd laugh. He'd go, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> and I remember as a kid doing that and us laughing at the table. The, the table can be a place of great joy, you know, and good memories and painful memories and, and all of that. It's, it's a place of, uh, of hospitality, I think is what that quote said. It, it's a place of hospitality and inclusivity and generosity and grace. The table is a place of grace, isn't it? Realizing that what we have on the table is only by the goodness of God that we have it. I mean, we might have worked hard and earned the money and gone to the store, but we didn't, most of us didn't raise the chickens or the, the vegetables or whatever it is we put on the table. Most of us didn't do that. Some of us did, but not all of us did that. It's only by the grace of God. And even if we raised the animals and we, we, we did the stuff with the vegetables and we tilled up the ground and we let it rest, we, even if we did all of that, none of us made it rain, right? 
None of us. And none of us caused the sun to shine that allowed the plants to to go through the process of photosynthesis and all that was needed for those plants to grow and be healthy then to feed us. Most, Most of us didn't do that. And so we recognize at the table, it's a place of grace. Um, early after, after uh, Jesus uh, was crucified and resurrected and, and this early church began to form, you know, one of the most uh, uh, confusing things to the Roman Empire was the table for Christians. It was just confusing to them. The Eucharist uh, communion was really confusing because they talked about it as if it was the body of Christ broken. Well, that's kind of weird. Right? I mean, the body of a human broken and they're going to take this and eat it? Kind of weird. And a little cup of juice or wine back then and and they're going to drink that? That's weird. It's the blood? Oh. So Emperor Julian and and also uh, before him there was a a governor, uh, Pliny the Younger. How would you like to be known as Pliny the Younger? The little one. (laughs) They both, uh, they wrote and they had people write about these Christian gatherings and how confusing they were and they called them love feasts. They didn't call them worship services, love feasts, because the table was central. And I think the table should be central for us as well. Everything changes around the table. Okay, quick, just to catch us back up where we were. Number one, uh, at the table we recognize God's provision, right? We should. We should recognize God's provision. Shauna Nyquist, uh, a great author, writer, she says this, that every time we eat, every time we gather together, every time we're sitting around this table, God is here. God is here and he's good. Anytime we're starting to eat, we should recognize that God's here and he's good. Um, Last week, if you weren't here last week, oh, you missed it. My twin brother, Jeremy, was here. (laughs) And um, Jeremy, like, had some energy And it was so funny because a few of you said to me, man, he had some energy. And after the service, Jeremy said, man, I really had to hold back today of how I I normally preach, um, which which was awesome. But um, Jeremy Jeremy said this, um, talking about the, the table invites us to a place of humility. If we're honest about how we sit at the table, it should invite us to a place of humility. And, And this is kind of how he said it. He said, you were invited to this table when he's talking about the table of God, you were invited to the table and you can't afford it. And that should change the, the attitude we have at the table. Listen, God invited you to his table and you didn't earn it and you can't afford it anyway. And so it should change your attitude about who else gets to sit at the table. Guys, it's not our table to make the invitation. It's God's table and he can invite and he does invite everyone to join him at the table. It should just change our our frame of mind and call us to a place of humility. And then today, I'm gonna go ahead and give you the big idea, and then uh, if you wanna tune out for a couple minutes, you can do that. Here's the big idea. the The table is a sacred space of celebration in life. The table in your home, if we can reframe it, The idea of the table in our home, it it could be a place of celebration and life for anyone who gathers, and that's that's where I wanna go today, okay? All right, so we're gonna head that direction. I got a couple stories, and I want to tell you some stories of Jesus, and I'll try to do it fairly quickly, and then we're going to get to the point, and I'm going to make you cry, and then we'll call it a day. (laughs) I'm not going to make you cry today. So I want to tell you a quick story, one of my favorite meals of all time, 
and uh, I'll never forget this meal, and it was an interesting place. So it was my wife, Robin, and it was me and Joe Webb, one of our worship leaders, I think he was right here today, and his wife, Christy. And we had been invited to speak and spend some time with some young pastors in Europe, and uh, so, you know, we had to go and spend some time with some young pastors in Europe. It was difficult. We went to Switzerland, and then we decided after Switzerland, we should probably go to Italy because you're close to Italy. I hear they have good pasta, so we thought we'd swing down to Italy and spend a little time there. So we swung down to Italy and um, spent some time uh, in some different cities, and we were in Siena. If you've ever heard of Siena, we were in Siena on Halloween night, and um, Oh, you already put the picture up. Oh. So here, here we were. So we, we go to our, our B&B where we're staying, and um, we, we tell them we want one of the most authentic Italian restaurants in Siena that you can point us to. And we don't have transportation, so we're going to have to walk. And they're like, oh, no problem. We want you to go down this street and take a right, and it'll just take you a few minutes to get there, and then you'll know it when you see this. So we start walking right down the street five miles later. <laughs> it was a long walk. Not five miles, but it was a long walk. So we finally get there. We get in, and in, in Europe, people eat really late. So we get there at like 7.30, which is like when the restaurant opens. Like there's nobody there. We're the first ones, and we get in, and um, they're all decorated for Halloween, and they invite us in, and we sit down, and then other people start to gather and it doesn't take us very long to realize we are the only ones that speak English in the restaurant or anyone near the restaurant. We can't find anyone to help us translate. It is the most authentic Italian restaurant you could ever find. And so we, we're laughing because there's, you know, when you, when you speak a different language, that's all you can do is laugh a little and point at things. And the, the, the menu... We had no idea. The only thing that like made any sense was bistake, and so we pointed at it and ordered two of them, and and had no idea that it was enough for to feed a small army. Um, so what happened was the owner of the restaurant comes out, and she's laughing, and our servers laughing, and the cook eventually comes out, and we're just like, bring us food, bring us food. So they just start bringing us just like plate after plate. And if you're in Europe, you just eat a lot of food in Europe. So they bring us like appetizers and then they, um, they bring us kind of the bistake and then they bring us pasta after that. And we think we're done and it's like halfway through the meal. <laughs> and they, you know, they just keep bringing us food and it's just a joyful time. And people are making fun of us in the restaurant, not because we can hear, understand what they're saying, but they're pointing and laughing at us. <laughs> um, and so at the end of the meal, the owner of the restaurant invites us to take a picture. So that's this picture after the meal. Look at the smiles on our faces. Look at Joe's funny haircut. And um, <laughs> that's a whole nother story. And here's what I realized, that you don't even have to, to speak the same language to share life around a table, do you? And so often our tables are places of people who just look like us and act like us and think like us, and it's, there's like no different language spoken around the table. And I look at Jesus, and, and he did it so differently. 
He sat at the table with people on far ends of the spectrum. And I think to myself, we, we so often get it wrong. I mean, we are in this, this year right now of, uh, I don't even know what to call it, political chaos. And in this church, just like in the community around us, we have people on far ends of the spectrum. We have those who would be considered conservative, far conservatives. We have those who would be considered far on the lip, which I love that's represented in our church, a wide range of people with different perspectives. And here's the deal. We should feel more at home uh, with people who share our faith. We should sit at the table more with people who share our faith than just with those who share our political views. And that's often not the case with us, is it? Ooh, now I'm stepping on toes. <laughs> so interesting uh, comment about Jesus. So if you had to fill in this blank, the Son of Man came blank, how would you fill in that blank? How would you answer that? The Son of Man came, ooh, I heard it, to save us. Someone said that? Everybody agree with that? Okay, three times this phrase is used in Scripture. Let's walk through this. It's so interesting to me. Three times the Son of Man came, here it is, the first one. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So some of you mentioned something probably in that as you were mumbling. The Son of Man came not to, to, to be served, but rather to put himself in a, in a humble position to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for all people, right? That's a good one. Second one. You guys nailed this second one. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Someone right up here said that. Gold star, Sunday school, you're a winner. It's awesome. That's in it. That's in the scripture. Now, this last one is so interesting to me. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? In fact, when, when uh, a couple of the authors talk about Jesus and how outsiders viewed Jesus, you know what they called him? They said he looked like a nothing, like a drunkard. Yeah, some people thought Jesus was like eating and drinking with just way too many like scandalous kind of people. Jesus? Yeah, Jesus. So a couple quick stories. Uh, later, Matthew, so Jesus found this guy named Matthew, great name. <laughs> he was a tax collector. Terrible job. Tax collectors in that day were thought of as just like the worst of the worst. They were scum. I know it's different today, but they were scum. <laughs> and oftentimes, tax, tax collectors leveraged their position to get more money. So they, they usually had some money, they were working for the Romans, just kind of a, an interesting position. So Jesus comes across this, na this, this man named Matthew, calls him to be one of his disciples. Matthew gets up and goes with him. So later, Matthew held a banquet in his home with Jesus as his guest of honor. And many fellow tax collectors and others, I think one translation says, many sinners were there with him. So you got the picture? Matthew throws a banquet, throws a party. Jesus is the guest of honor. He invites all of his friends. Guess who all of his friends are? Tax collectors, because no one wants to hang out with the tax collectors. It's only tax collectors who hang out with tax collectors. So all of his friends, tax collectors, sinners, 
people who are thought of as being sketchy, that's kind of what they do. And so then this is what happens next. The Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? It's a good way to reach other people, isn't it? Call them scum. Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Jesus viewed the table as a way to connect with people who may not be like him in order to bring them to life, in order to share life and to celebrate life together. Isn't that interesting? He did this all the time. Zacchaeus, he did it with a man named Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? He was a, he was a wee little man, <laughs> like Pliny the Younger. Um, after Zacchaeus came down out of the, the sycamore tree, if you grew up in Sunday school class, the sycamore tree and all of that, what did he do? He went home, he invited Jesus to his house, he threw a party, and Jesus said, truly I tell you, salvation has come to this house today, probably around the table. I mean, we're not sure, but it's probably around the table that Jesus makes this declaration of salvation, life, celebrating life with people who were very different than him. Uh, there's a story uh, Michael Frost writes this story in this book called Surprise the World. I would highly recommend this book, Surprise the World, if you want a short little read that will challenge your missional outview and the ways that you live in this world, this is a good one. We'll talk about it some in the next few weeks as well. But um, Surprise the World, um, he's talking about a, a, a preacher in uh, Portland. And I'm always interested in preacher stories. Some of you don't care, so you'll drift off here for just a minute, but that's okay. Preacher in, uh, in Portland, Oregon. And uh, the, the neighbor of this preacher in Oregon, like, was self-identified as the best margarita maker in all of Oregon. And so he would throw margarita parties and poker nights for the whole neighborhood. And, like, all the men from the neighborhood would gather at his house for margaritas and, post, and poker, except for the Baptist pastor. Oh, I just said, I didn't mean to say the denomination. I apologize. I really didn't. That just slipped out. Except for the pastor. Forget that I said that. So, except for the pastor. <laughs> the pastor refused to go to the margarita and poker nights. And when Michael asked him, why do you refu refuse to go to the margarita and poker nights, you know what he said? It's my witness. It's my witness to live differently. And so then Michael asked him the question, because of your witness, how many times have you been asked to explain why you have faith in Jesus with the men in your neighborhood? You know what he said? None. Not once had anyone asked him about his faith due to him not attending the margarita and poker nights. And so Michael said to him, hey, I want to challenge you. Next time they throw a party, show up. And I guarantee you, people will ask you questions. So the next time the invitation came, the pastor showed up at the margarita and poker night. Now, true to his form, he only drank a Coke that night. But when asked, how many questions about faith did you get? More than he had talked about for years. Who would have thought that the witness came from showing up where people didn't think you would show up rather than staying away from the places where people knew you would stay away from? Ooh, now that's sketchy. What am I giving you permission to do? <laughs> I'm not giving you permission to do anything because you're an adult. You can do whatever you want anyway. But 
Sometimes we think that the very things that give us witness actually don't proclaim the very things that Jesus has called us to proclaim. It actually doesn't put us in the position to speak life into the places that need life to be spoken into. Can I get something in the room, right? That's what we're called to be, is to show up in those kind of places. The lost son. Uh, many of you have heard the story of the prodigal son, this, young, this the younger son who asks his dad for all the money, you know, the inheritance before he's dead, and he takes it, what does he do with it? He blows it, right, in wild living, it says, and he finally hits the bottom, and he decides to return home, and what does the father do? He notices he's coming from far off, and it's like he's on the front porch just waiting, hoping his son will return, and he sees him far off, and and his dad, so Jesus says his dad just sits there with his arms folded, shaking his head. No, he doesn't do that. He like runs to the young son, and he puts his arms around him, and he scoops him up, and the son falls down on his knees with his recorded speech of, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner, I should have never, and the dad says, shut up, stand up get a robe to put around him and get some new sandals for his feet and put a nice ring on his, put a ring on it and, and, <laughs> and kill the fattened calf. We're going to throw a party, right? I mean, the scripture even says it. So the party began. Guess who refused to come into the party? The older son. Why? Because we shouldn't throw a party for the younger son who just blew all of our money. He blew the inheritance. Why would you throw a party? Because the one that was dead is now alive. What are we throwing parties for around here? What are you throwing parties for in your home? Are you throwing parties for life? Listen, I know some of us who have kids who have left home and we feel like they've turned their backs on us. What do we do when they come home? What do do we do when our children come home? What do you do when your grandkids turn around and come home? Throw a party. Don't teach them a lesson. They've already learned it. You might need to have a conversation But throw a party. Why? Jesus says that's what God does for us. Listen, how many of you have ever turned your back on God and needed to come back to him? Come on, you're in church. Tell the truth. (laughs) How many of you have ever turned away from God? All of us, everybody in this room, you have turned away from God. Not one of us have lived a pure life. And what do we need when when we come home? We need God to scoop us up off the ground. We're crawling back like servants, and he's saying, you are a son, you are a daughter of the most high God, you are heir to the kingdom. Get off the ground and join the party, right? That's what we're called to do. Everything changes around the table. One last story. Oh, I could just talk all day if you want to stick around. (laughs) One last story. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home to eat. Now, this is a fascinating story to me. Jesus is sitting around the table with the usual suspects, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the people who show up at church. And they're sitting around the table. And look how, look how Luke describes it. When a certain immoral woman from the city, when a certain immoral woman. Now, what does that tell you? Just the language of that. What does that tell you? She was well known in the city. What do you think she was well known for? She probably shouldn't be showing up at the home of the Pharisee. When she heard Jesus was going to be there, she went and got this expensive perfume. Now, if you're a prostitute in the first century, one of the, the tricks of the trade would be perfume. It would be the thing that would attract men 
It would be the thing that would help you connect with where your money is going to come from. It's what you needed to do what you do. She goes and gets this expensive perfume that she needs. And it says that she like gets down on the ground behind Jesus at the table. And she like breaks, like, like this is probably all that she has like financially. She breaks it and pours it at his feet. And she's crying at the table. Now listen, does she, does she belong at the table? Well, yeah, okay, that's the Christian answer. <laughs> if you're one of the religious leaders, does she belong at the table? Heck no. And in the first century, a woman has no place in that room unless she's serving the men sitting around the table. And here's this woman who does not care anymore. There is something about this man, Jesus, that, that causes her to, to let go of everything she, probably what she holds most valuable, this perfume, to come into a place that she's not supposed to be. And she breaks this jar and she pours it and she's weeping at his feet and she's wiping uh, his feet with her hair, which is scandalous. I mean, let's just be honest. If someone did that in your house, you would think that's weird and it's just not something that's supposed to happen in this place. And she's like wiping his feet and she's crying in the perfume. And you know what the guys around the table are doing? They're shaking their head. They're just shaking their head like, what are you doing in this place? And so go on to the next, uh, this next passage. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he, he said to himself, if, if he was a prophet, he would know who's touching him. He would know who this woman is. Jesus doesn't care. Or if you're from Alabama like me, he don't care. <laughs> because everyone's welcome at his table. Everyone's welcome. Like those who don't have an agenda, come to the table and feast at the table. I don't know. The, the, the scripture doesn't tell anything else about this lady like further down the road. But my guess is every time she found herself at a table, she remembered Jesus. Thankful for God's grace and what Jesus did for her in that place. Right? So um, here's, here's my thought. This is kind of the big thought and, and we're going to sing and, and have a, a moment to respond. But here's the big thought. I, I think the table in the home today could become like an altar for us, an altar. Like your table in your home, think about this. What if your table, what if you viewed it as, as, as if it were an altar? Now, what's an altar? Did you grow up in church? Did some of you grow up in church? You know what an altar was? So a couple things in scripture that an altar definitely was. An altar was a, a place of memory. For them, So they would set up an altar so they could remember something. And an altar was, was a place with spiritual significance, like where some decisions were made. Like when we grew up in church, we had these altars down front that people could come and kneel at. You guys remember those? And we'd sing old hymns like 33 times until somebody would come forward to kneel at the altar. And it was like once one person did it, like it called off the, you know. <laughs> Um, so people would come forward and kneel at the altar, but that altar, I, I, I kind of joke about it, but listen, that altar was a sacred place for so many people. It was a healing place. It was a place where people found life and they marked something significant 
and they turned back to God and they received grace. That's what that altar was for so many people. What if that altar for us was the table? What if the table was the space in our life that was a memory of God's grace? What if it was a memory for your kids and your grandkids, your spouse, a place where they found life and celebration like nowhere else in this world? What if that was the table for you? <laughs> um, what if your table became a place of invitation for people who live next door to you, for coworkers who just didn't have a place to go, for classmates? Like, what if your table became a gathering spot, a margarita party, a poker night? What if it became the sacred space where, where everyone found a home? Shauna Nyquist, um, she's written a couple great books about this, this kind of thought. Um, one of them is called Bread and Wine, and she said, she said this, people aren't looking for perfection. Many of us don't, we don't invite people into our homes because we don't think they're good enough, our homes. People aren't looking for perfection. They're not longing to be impressed. There's plenty out there to impress people. People are looking for a place that feels like home. So my challenge to you is this. Open your table. Make it an altar. For your family, but also for some people who maybe are on the outskirts of your life. Like what would it look like for all of us to invite some neighbors in over the next month and just share a meal? So that's, that's the challenge for the day. Make your table an altar like Jesus did. Would you stand with me? And we're gonna sing a couple songs and just give you a space to respond. There's some uh, communion here at the front and in the back, and maybe today you just need to take communion and be reminded of God's great love, Jesus' body which was broken, his blood which was poured out. So maybe you wanna take communion in this place this morning, and you're free to do that. In the back of the room uh, is a prayer wall. Maybe you wanna write out a prayer and just put it in that prayer wall. There's some prayer partners that will be in the back as well. Maybe you want someone to pray with you. There are candles on the back corners and uh, light represents God's presence. And many of you walked in today feeling very disconnected from God. And I would encourage you to light a candle today. Just say, God, would your presence be with me? Uh, would you bow your heads with me just for a second? God, in this space um, and in this time, we've turned back to you. We've read, listened to some stories about Jesus, and I just pray that the table in our lives would become like an altar, a place of love and grace and peace and hope and joy, a place of honesty. God, fill our homes and help us to open the table to to those we come in contact with. Help the table become central in our community. We pray this in the name of Jesus.